proposed federal and state policies to restrict coverage and access to biomedical innovations approved through the FDA's accelerated approval pathway are setting off alarms among rare disease advocates. That's because the accelerated approval pathway is often used for faster, reliable drug development to meet the unmet needs of people with rare diseases. Vital Transformation recently completed a comprehensive impact assessment of these proposed changes and what they could mean for patients and future innovations. To take a deeper dive into those findings, I'm very pleased to be joined by two people who supported this work for VT, Amanda Malikoff, the Executive Director of the Rare Disease Company Coalition, the RDCC. Quite a mouthful. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Hi. Doing great. Thanks. Thanks for popping by here to the Vital Health Podcast. And Lisa Fang, who is the Senior Director of Policy at Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease. Hello, Lisa. How are you? Hi, Dwayne. Happy to be here. Good to see both of you. So, in 1992, the FDA instituted the Accelerated Approval Pathway and Regulations. These allowed drugs with serious conditions that filled unmet needs to be approved based on a surrogate endpoint. Now, 82% of all accelerated approvals are for rare and orphan conditions. And from the period of 2014 to 2019, FDA approved 39 therapies targeting these rare orphan conditions a year. What role does the accelerated approval play in facilitating the development and approval of these therapies targeting rare and orphan conditions? Just to set the stage a little bit. So you talked about accelerated approval using surrogate endpoints. Big picture is that accelerated approval is a regulatory pathway that allows uh, companies to use those surrogate endpoints as a way to show that their treatment is helping patients before it goes through the entire process. So it allows the process to move more quickly. So how do we define a surrogate endpoint from your perspective? So a surrogate endpoint is defined as a measure likely to provide clinical benefit to patients. So essentially what that means is it is showing that there is some sort of health improvement from using the medication. So for example, if you were looking at um, a medication to treat strokes, high blood pressure might be an indicator or a cause of a stroke. So a something that would show a treatment was working rather than going all the way to say, oh, this is prevented strokes. You might show it lowered blood pressure. And that's a positive indicator that the treatment is working successfully for patients. So it's a, it's an indication that should predict better outcomes when you don't necessarily have the better outcomes at hand with the clinical research you've done at that point. Exactly. And the reason why that's relevant for this conversation today and for rare disease is rare disease clinical trials are much more complex than the standard clinical trial process. Um, It takes on an average about 15 years to go through the entire clinical trial research and development and clinical trial process for rare disease. And what that looks like is many years where patients don't get access to treatment, rare disease patients don't get access to treatment. Um, And the other reason why that's relevant is uh, about half of people with rare diseases are children. And oftentimes, rare disease treatment is more impactful the earlier it's administered. So if you can treat someone in certain cases while they're younger, that has a more, um, it's more impactful to get the medicine to them earlier. So in rare disease, this allows, you know, a patient not to have to wait until they get through that threshold where the treatment might not be as effective. Um, And then more broadly, outside of pediatric population, 90% of rare disease patients, roughly, don't have any treatment at all. So there's no alternative option. So accelerated approval medications allow us to say, you have no option. Here is 
some sort of medication that will help you, will help improve your health. And so we'd rather get that treatment to them as soon as possible with the hopes of treating them effectively than waiting 15 years and not getting them any treatment at all or delaying it further. With a surrogate endpoint that confers some clinical benefit, at least that we can estimate within statistical bounds that should be positive when we get the full data pack. Exactly. So, so Lisa, you work for Alexion. You guys specialize in rare and orphan conditions. How important is the accelerated approval to your work at Alexion? I mean, how much do you folks rely on this to get stuff out? As a rare disease drug maker, we look at all pathways, traditional, expedited, and the accelerated approval pathway is is one of them. It's an important one. It allows us to work on rare diseases that are difficult to measure, like Amanda said, clinically. Um, a lot of times, these are diseases that are slow progressing. So we don't necessarily want to wait decades for a morbidity or a mortality measure, but we can measure the effectiveness of the drug based on some sort of surrogate endpoint or biochemical endpoint. Is a lot of that having to do with the difference between an outcomes trial with a small population versus an indication that you know is a surrogate right now that you can kind of assume you're going to get an outcome? Is it really just you don't have enough data to get the hard outcome point? Is that what it is most of the time, some of the time? Is that what you're looking for? There are a lot of factors when we choose to go with the accelerated approval process. And one of that is actually whether the FDA is aligned with that recommendation as well. And so consensus with the FDA on the endpoint itself is critical in terms of setting ourselves up for success. And when you have an agreement with the FDA, you know, we looked at 206 of these agreements with the FDA individually, you know, there's an agreement about what the evidence requirement is, how long it's going to take. I mean, that's sort of almost like a a research contract, as it were, Mm -hmm. that you're going to fulfill those obligations. And those are the targets that you're basically agreeing with the FDA in advance. As long as there is open and frequent communication with the FDA, with the review division, and with the reviewers that understand rare diseases, and especially the whichever rare disease they are reviewing, I think that is a model that works. Because the last thing you want is any unforeseen issues when you're already you know down the line. Right now, today, 85% of untreated orphan conditions have an incidence rate of less than one in one million. So these are punishingly small conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, that means your maximum U.S. population is somewhere between 300 and 340 people. Is it even possible economically to develop a targeted therapy for an orphan and rare disease of that size without a surrogate endpoint? I think we have to remember that there are over 10,000 known rare diseases so whether it's 85 or 95% of them it's don't have, a lot. it's still <laughs> yeah. a lot. And most of these rare diseases are not well known. They're not well studied. And so the major thing that binds them really is that they're rare, but beyond that, they vary greatly. What I mean is they vary in etiology. About 80% of the rare diseases are genetic. They vary in demographics and the patient populations that they affect Um, And even within the same rare diseases, there's high variability. The selection of the endpoint is a multifactorial decision. And there are going to be rare diseases where it makes sense for a surrogate endpoint. And there are others where it makes sense for a clinical endpoint. It all sort of depends. The critical piece to remember is that 
we need every possible pathway as an option to develop drugs for rare disease patients because they deserve it. They deserve to have a level playing field when it comes to having access to treatments. Accelerated approval is an opportunity for rare disease for companies to use it more. So your study that you referred to, you looked at a lot of orphan conditions, but the majority of orphan conditions that have used accelerated approval are for rare forms of cancer. There are a lot of other non-cancerous rare diseases out there, and I believe the number is around 10% only of those diseases have um, had treatments approved via accelerated approval pathway. So due to the complex nature of rare disease and the really high unmet need, we think that accelerated approval should be used more, to Lisa's point, as it makes sense and as it's appropriate. We think it's a good fit for the rare disease population and um, companies want to be able to take advantage of it in a more consistent way. Most of the instances where accelerated approval was used was in rare oncology um, and a small proportion, but we think that there's more potential for its use in non-oncology indications. One of the major differences, as as I'm aware, between oncology and non-oncology is that there are known surrogate endpoints in oncology that are accepted by the FDA and also accepted on the payer side as well. When medical directors are reviewing the new drugs that come on as accelerate approval and if they're oncology, they are more familiar with these surrogate endpoints than if they see a brand new one that they've never heard of or seen before for a rare disease that creates a gap in how the rare disease data is taken in, at least from the payer side. Tumor size and tumor reduction is one of the key secondary surrogate endpoints that's used. And if we look at, we'll dig into the study now a little bit. If we look at some of the numbers, you got roughly 100, 125 approvals that ran for primary first approvals, first indications, then you had 80 secondary endpoints. So that's where you get the 206. You've had about 30 withdrawals, both for that didn't meet the clinical endpoints and they didn't have commercial viability. So that's about 15, 20% have gone away. And that leaves you, you know, with roughly about 95 primary indications, give or take. Now the secondary indications, what's intriguing, over 50 of those are three drugs. So a quarter of the entire clinical pathway for the accelerated approvals are three drugs. One of them is Gleevec, one of them is Optivo, the drug that, the combo therapy, the checkpoint inhibitor that came out from BMS to look at melanoma. And the other, of course, is Keytruda. My father right now has metastatic cancer. They're putting on some of these late stage drugs because they're effective. The folks such as yourself who are dealing a lot with genetic indicators that are genetic in nature or very tied to specific indications, you don't have that ability for secondary tertiary indications. Not necessarily true. Sometimes rare disease drugs, we do look at it from a platform perspective as well. I think it's the nature of rare disease. It's so difficult to study. From the basic science side, to understanding the patient population, to creating a clinical trial that works all across the board. It's challenging for rare diseases. I think that the accelerated approval pathway actually, in a lot of ways, recognizes some of that immense unmet need 
and which is why we, we want to preserve it. We want to preserve it and we want to improve upon it rather than pull it away, both on the regulatory side and on the access side. If we look at the RDCC, you are a relatively new coalition in Washington, D.C., you're focused on rare diseases. Can you tell us a little bit about why you got started and how it's going? Yeah, so you're right. We're about a year and a half old as an organization. We represent 22 biotech companies that are developing and bringing treatments to patients with rare diseases. The coalition got started because, to Lisa's point, rare disease issues are very nuanced. A lot of broader pharmaceutical industry policy has unintended consequences on rare disease drug development and then on rare disease patients. And so the coalition got started to really be laser focused on how some of those broader policies will apply specifically to companies developing orphan drugs and how you know our goal is to educate policymakers and ensure that there are special considerations for rare disease drugs because they're very unique and require a lot more investment, research and development, they're more risky, the clinical trials are more complex, and so there needs to be nuance in healthcare policy and considering how some of these broader proposals will have a negative impact on rare disease drug development. If we look at some of the regulatory proposals that were coming out last year, and I'm thinking particularly the Pallone bill, for example, that was going to put a hard five-year cap on the ability to have a data research package come in. So basically, if you were going to take longer than five five years, you were not going to get FDA approval. We looked at, as I said, those 209 uh, approvals that had gone in, and we found that 75% of all of the accelerated approvals that had gone through FDA through the last 20 years had been approved and converted and filed their data packages within four years, 75%. And that left 25%. If we went to five years, that left 20% of the drugs that hadn't fulfilled in five years. That So 20% of the pathway would have been you know, gone had the Pallone bill passed. Gaucher's disease by Genzyme was the longest we had in the, in the pathway. And that took 18 years. It was only 40 people. I mean, that was basically the entire population they had available. And it was an outcomes trial. And it just took a long time to get the data. We can assume that everyone's taking longer than five years as a bad actor. But statistically, that would not be the case. What we found was overwhelmingly you can model how long it's going to take based on the size of the population. It was mathematically very viable and it was not what we expected to find. The ability to fulfill the evidence obligation is directly related to the size of the population, the, the, bigger the, the size of the bite of the apple you can take from a population standpoint. Do regulators understand this is reality? I mean, this is what's actually going on? If you're a drug maker and you're taking the drug through the accelerated approval pathway, you're recognizing, you're accepting that the confirmatory trial is part of the package. Absolutely. The policy proposals like the Pallone bill are blunt instruments um, (laughs) in trying to penalize what they view as bad actors. But it is really putting a bias against our ability to treat slow progressive diseases as well. And most of those were genetic biomarker-based or rare conditions. And if we think about those diseases and just think about neuromuscular diseases, right? Not just Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is one of them. But other neuromuscular diseases that are slow progressing, sometimes that could take a couple of decades. Why would we have a draconian policy where we take away that drug from the patient, from the market, 
because it's taking too long to get that clinical benefit measured. Well, cynically, because it's politically popular. I think that's the cynical answer. Well, it was a, <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. Um, but, but, I, but you have to understand, right? Because there are, in our industry, it's so difficult because we're not a homogenous group. Every company is different, and that's why the RDCC kind of exists to at least represent rare disease companies. And I'm not saying there aren't bad actors out there, but I think that there are these unintended consequences. That was the that's been a theme lately around yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know drug industry policies, where we're really taking these opportunities away from patients who have been waiting their entire lives. Let's not forget. Rare disease patients do not have it easy. They wait an average of five years before they're even diagnosed. They go through seven, eight, or 10 specialists before they're diagnosed. And then once they are, is there a treatment for them? You would hope so. And if there is a treatment, why get it pulled because of of some arbitrary policy where another entity is second-guessing the FDA, which is established to do just that, established that the drug is safe and effective. The FDA has made great strides in terms of improving the way that they understand rare diseases and thinking about, you know, how can they better support this highly needy population, right? There's 30 million people with rare diseases in this country. That's one in 10. That's actually more. That's not as rare as we think it is. But the FDA has made great strides on them. But I think that some of the review divisions are more acquainted with rare diseases than others. That creates differences in terms of how the rare disease drugs are are reviewed across the agency, and we'd like to see improvements across. We, we'd like to see some consistency across, and we've looked at the FDA's uh, efforts in oncology and creating oncology centers of excellence. There's a brain trust around a certain area, and that's worked well, and I think that there are elements there that we can learn for rare diseases. Being at the vantage point I'm at with the coalition, I get to hear stories from over 20 companies of the experiences that they've had. And they really run the gamut, right? There are some companies that have had a best in class, you know, everything worked the way it should. They had the right expertise at the FDA. Things went through smoothly and patients were able to get access. But there are some other organizations that have had the complete opposite experience. And what it all comes down to is what review division their drug technically treats. So for example, you could be working on a disease that treats a rare skin condition and be in the dermatology review unit. There's no mechanism right now to say, hey, this is not a standard disease. This is a rare disease. Therefore, this clinical trial is going to require a whole other approach. And a requirement to then bring in someone with the right expertise at FDA. So as a result, companies are having really unpredictable experiences. And so in the coalition, as Lisa was alluding to, um, we have um, a suggestion out there where we're asking for FDA just to conduct a review to see right now, how does this process work? What experts do they have? Where are they situated? How is the process going? I don't even know if that information is clear. And that's where we need to start is just understanding how it's set up today so that we can ideally make improvements. And then the last point I want to make, again, representing the companies, most of these companies, it can't be said enough, do not make a profit. 
they most of the companies don't bring in any revenue, especially the pre-commercial stage companies. They rely solely on investors and investor funding to fuel all this work that they're doing. If there is not a consistent next step and every single clinical trial is unprecedented and there's not those milestones along the way, they don't have a strong case that they can make to investors. Investors look to what's happening next with FDA to fuel their confidence and continue to you know, put that investment forward. And so there is a risk. The regulatory process, people are looking at it outside of DC. Investors are looking at it. And if there can't be that predictability, then some of these companies might not be able to go forward. And that's the last thing that any of us want, because at the end of the day, we want to be able to bring those treatments to patients. Yeah. And that's a really important point, because part of our research, when we looked at this relationship between clinical size agreed with FDA in the confirmatory trial for a surrogate endpoint for an accelerated approval and the net present value, the return on investment, as it were, we, we overwhelmingly saw a negative correlation. The longer it took, the smaller the indication, the less likely you were, even if you were a drug in the market, to have a net positive NPV. In other words, you're under the cost of capital. You're under 10% return on investment. Sometimes it's directly negative. Those who have the bigger indications and go faster generally are more profitable. Essentially, there's already revenue risk there. Investors are going to be taking a hard, long second look at this. And probably, as we've seen with neurology, where we've seen a 50% reduction in R&D over the last decade, we would probably see similar reductions. Is Amanda, you're having to deal with the hill on this stuff. Is there an understanding of the reality of this from an economic standpoint? The understanding could be stronger. For sure. I mean, that goes back to why the coalition started. There was not one organization out there communicating this. And frankly, it is a really urgent situation. And so we're trying to lend urgency to it. When we explain it, people are very open to it. But I wouldn't say that it's a commonly known fact. Um, And I will say, you know, having many conversations with the patient groups, they're sharing the same concern. They want to see these biotech companies get the funding they need, have successful clinical trials. So the entire rare disease community, right, is rooting for the companies. Um, But I do think there's a gap in understanding among policymakers and their staff as to why rare disease drug development is so much riskier, so much more costly, why it's unique, and why there needs to be special considerations. You know, the Orphan Drug Act, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act in January. That was really the first stride in recognizing that companies need additional economic incentives to be able to make these, you know, this work viable, even not profitable, but just viable. And so we would really like to see that built upon and evolve for the needs today. And so that's, you know, something the coalition is really working on educating policymakers on. I'd like to uh, turn our attention for a moment here to Medicaid. Georgetown University, the Health Policy Institute there, released a study recently that stated, which was quite shocking, that half of all the children in the United States, roughly 40 million, are now insured through Medicaid. Uh, Post-COVID, it was quite a huge number. Obviously, there's a lot of orphan conditions that are focused on children. How important is the accelerated approval in addressing this particular population that's getting uh, treatment through Medicaid? Half of the children in the U.S. are in Medicaid or CHIP, and half of the Medicaid population is children. So it's it's interesting. The rest of them are low-income families and some seniors, too. So either way, while every state handles the Medicaid program a little 
differently, right? Like people who work in Medicaid know that one state Medicaid is one state Medicaid. They all pride themselves in being a little bit different. But the federal mandate is to provide a safety net for the most vulnerable. And part of that is to provide them with the treatments that are available um, and on the market. So in terms of accelerated approval for the Medicaid population, I think about it as Medicaid recipients should have access to all the treatment innovations that are available as long as it's to label. Why shouldn't they? Why would it be that somebody who has Medicaid in Oregon not have access to the same types of drugs as if they were on Medicaid in California, Texas, or New York? But we saw, when we analyzed this, we saw huge variances amongst the coverages and the access in the 50 states in the U.S. I mean, it was really striking. Not, That's No true. two states had the same drugs covered that were accelerated approvals. I mean, it was quite shocking to us. There's a lot of variability there. There's different people reviewing things. They're relying on different resources, different uh, levels of medical expertise, and also have to acknowledge that their budgets are finite. So they do have to make decisions on where they spend the healthcare resources that they have in a year. But as your report found, the accelerated approval drugs are such, you know, half a percent. Yeah, it was de minimis. Half a point of the entire Medicaid budget. So even if we got rid of all the drugs from the accelerated approval process, it really wouldn't make much of an impact on their healthcare spending savings. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, we looked at all 206 drugs that we had over the 10-year cohort. And what we found is, yeah, in totality, the total impact was less than one half of 1% on average. So half of the states actually had lower than that. So, I mean, we're talking a rounding error. It's a bit crazy. I do think that it's a response to something else that we all know, right? It's a response to the, the amyloid Alzheimer's drugs that are not rare. They're mass market and they could potentially make a big budget impact. But that's the thing. It's an unintended consequence for rare diseases, for rare disease drugs. If we have these policies that are really just defined by a FDA pathway versus anything else. So we understand where they're coming from and what triggered this. But in reality, it's not playing out the way that they plan to. Yeah, well said. And and Dwayne, your study looked at this too, right? I mean, I know you all found even if just some of the states made this change to Medicaid that Oregon had initially proposed to make that um, we're happy to not go through, that that would impact at the very least 200,000 patients. Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's correct. And and about a third of the drugs, between 20 and 30% of the drugs would come off the market potentially if we had a 15 to 20% reduction in aggregate spending across the states. Yeah. So it's an outside impact on a community that's absolutely desperately needing, mm-hmm. which is very, yes. uh, again, I'm going to quote Harry here, Harry Bowen, our staff economist who often has the best pithy quotes. Harry said, if you're trying to meaningfully reduce state budgets, restricting access to accelerated approved therapies within Medicaid seems to be a strange place to focus your efforts as that spending accounts for little more than a rounding error. And Harry's 100% correct. Access 
service that's so desperately needed for such a de minimis spend on, you know, as you rightly point out, Lisa, drugs that aren't even approved yet and not even, you know, reimbursed by CMS. It just seems very odd. Yeah. If states look to limit access to drugs based on just the pathway that they were approved by the FDA, then then we're really concerned about the fate of rare disease uh, treatment access and the, the fate of rare disease patients. And the fact that we're going to be creating disparities among the patient populations compared to non-rare disease patients, compared to patients with rare diseases, depending on where you live. There's just going to be all types of differences across the board. And if I can add, even within rare conditions, based on if you have multiple indications of an oncology product, or if you're a genetic condition that can't, because that will impact your ability. So we're going to be restricting specifically very small targeted genetic-based therapies more often than not. Those will be the people who lose out just because of the nature and dint of the disease they have. Probably. And if you limit access, it creates disparities. And we should all be looking at ways to promote equity, not the other way around. So 50 states shouldn't be developing their own policies around a drug just based on its approval pathway. Yeah, I think it's important to note, right, the FDA itself has said that this is a legitimate pathway. Members of Congress have been quoted recently Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the, one of the leaders on the Energy and Commerce Committee, recently said that accelerated approval is, quote, a important tool in the toolbox for FDA. So if at the federal level, this is a legitimate pathway, then we shouldn't be having states making different decisions to Lisa's point that are then going to disadvantage people based on where they live. Given all the challenges we've seen, we've seen the Pallone bill, we've seen 1115 waivers so far. You know, these have been brushed aside, but as we've seen with what's been happening with CMS and with the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed, the ability to stave this stuff off, unfortunately, uh, may be waning because it's politically popular. If we could potentially make recommendations without altering the use of the accelerated pathway at the congressional level or at the administrative level or at FDA or CMS, what should those recommendations be? What should we be doing? I'm going to take this very broadly and also exceed your your request for the, the one proposal. Okay. I'm, going to, I'm going to have three. Go ahead. Shoot. Go ahead. Well, I, I've worked in rare diseases for a, a while now, and there are lots of regulatory and legislative proposals that we could do to improve the lives of people with rare disease. Um, whether it's you know anywhere between the spectrum of of science development, getting a drug to market, and getting the drugs to the hands of the patients, and that should be our ultimate goal. I think for us, I mentioned this earlier. One of the greatest challenges for rare disease patients is the long diagnostic odyssey. It takes way too long to get a correct diagnosis. Yeah, something like six different or eight different doctor's visits on average is what it takes. On average of five years and yeah. seven seven specialists. Yes. So that's an average. Yes. I've heard much longer and, and many, many more specialists. It's devastating. It really puts a burden on somebody to not know what they have and to feel sick. That should be unacceptable to all of us um, as patient advocates. And we would need a suite of regulatory changes, I'll just say policy changes, to combat this, to to really shorten that odyssey, and maybe one day to make it not an odyssey. 
you know, something quicker. But in this political environment, that's going to be a heavy lift. I don't know. I, I have a hard time thinking that helping people get diagnosed should be should be <laughs> it should easy. be it, sh- it should be a bipartisan it should be a, a a thing to get behind for all of us like i said 30 million americans with rare diseases we all probably know somebody and i think we'd want to help our neighbors so that's one one thing the diagnostic journey on the drug approval side Um, Just reiterating, I think that the FDA has done a great job in recent years in kind of ramping up their ability to handle the rare disease drug reviews. I think there's more that they could do, and that's ramping up their brain trust for rare disease uh, reviews across the divisions, create some sort of consistency there, and looking at the Oncology Center of Excellence as, as a model could be a good place to start. On the access side of things, we would like to see a less of a gap between FDA and CMS. Just more communication, at the very least, would be good, you know, giving each other a heads up, which I think that they do, but sometimes sometimes there's still a schism between the two agencies. And last thing we want to see is them potentially, you know, one agency potentially undermining another agency's decisions. And we want to encourage them to coordinate and collaborate to ensure that patients have swift access to the treatments. And also, it goes a long way to improving our confidence in our healthcare system and the the people who run it. Amanda, what do you think? We would agree with everything Lisa so eloquently stated. I'm surprised. So, you would, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. Um, so there's not um, a ton of additional detail I would add, but I would summarize what policymakers can do in three ways, three major things. One, provide more certainty to companies. What process are you going to go through? What should you expect? What will the steps be when you are putting a drug through the approval process at the FDA? Two, rare disease companies um, and rare disease clinical trials and patients need special exceptions and consideration whenever policies are going into place. And a big part of that is incentives. You know, a theme uh, underpinning this whole discussion, in addition to unintended consequences, is also just how risky and economically challenging it is to do this. And so the more policymakers can make this easier and less costly and less challenging for companies by providing special incentives. For example, the orphan drug tax credit that was limited. Um, It was 50% when it started. Now it's 25%. We should be thinking of ways to increase incentives, not lower them. So incentives. And then third, I would just say really important for all policymakers to ensure that they're pulling in the right experts. So whether that be um, incorporating the patient perspective, making sure that patients have a voice in this process and that real-world evidence, their data is being used, um, and also they should be pulling in the right experts from the rare disease side. It's a theme not only with the FDA, but there are some medical institutions that have really breaking knowledge on rare diseases, how they evolve, how they can be treated, and so the more that experts can be considered, the more we can avoid those unintended consequences. You know, in Europe, there's an ATMP, an advanced therapy committee. There's also an orphan committee. Should we be looking at something like that at FTA? There are right now numerous proposals of how something like that might be created. We don't necessarily have a theory on exactly what that looks like, but I think we all agree it needs to be better streamlined and centralized. So we support any way, any mechanism to make that happen. Amanda, 
thank you very much for your time. Lisa, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great project, and I appreciate your contributions today. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure being here. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.